anything in healthcare, you will not have any problem finding a job. It, and I say it now to my grandchildren. It doesn't just have to be medical technology. You could go into physical therapy. You could become a pharmacist. You could become a nurse. You could become a doctor, a PA, a nursing practitioner. You will never have to look for a job. This is Professional Confessionals. Ribia Abdelhadi, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so intrigued by your story, and I want to start right from the beginning. Tell us where you were born. I was born outside of Ramallah. In the, it used to be the West Bank of Jordan at the time. And at the first five years, I was sent to a school in the village, the primary school. But that's all we had. When you became in sixth grade, you had to go somewhere else. So my parents chose a convent called St. Joseph's College in Ramallah, even though it's not a college, but that's what it was called. But for me to be there, I had to board with the nuns and go home one day a month to visit my family. And actually, from my whole village, I was the only girl who was in that school. There were a lot of other children from all over, but from my village, I was the only one. So I have a story about going into that uh, convent and to show people how difficult, if you don't even know that there are nuns in the world, Mm -hmm. and then you end up in a school like that, The first night, they served macaroni, but I didn't know what macaroni is. And it didn't have any sauce or anything. So I asked them, what are are you feeding us? They said, this is macaroni. I said, I'm not going to eat. They said, well, you're going to have to eat it or you're going to go to bed without food. So the superior stood there with the fork full of macaroni and I quickly put a handkerchief made of linen in my mouth and established to them that I was not going to eat macaroni. (laughs) So I was sent to bed without supper, but for the next seven years, they never put a dish of macaroni in front of me again. (laughs) So this gives us a, a really good glimpse into the kind of resolve you have, the kind of... You know, you're you're not someone who's going to just take stuff laying down, as they say. You're, you're an advocate for yourself. Absolutely. And a very strong woman, obviously. So where, where did that come from? It comes from my mother, who really was a very strong woman. She didn't know how to read or write, because in her time, there were no schools in that uh, village. And yet she taught herself how to read by someone just showing her what the letters are. Not really fluent, but she was able to sign her name, got herself into building buildings for us. So we still own buildings that my mother built in Ramallah, eight stores, 12 apartments, couple of buildings in town, and we still have the large house that she managed with 10 acres of land around it. And at the time, my father was in the United States. So she was the one negotiating. She was the one building. She was the one choosing everything for those buildings. So she went into the real estate without any education in that field. And you must succeeded. have been very proud of her, and, and it was probably a great example for you. Absolutely, and my daughters know her, knew her very well because I used to send them back home every year to spend the summer with her and with their aunts and uncles and learn about the culture and see how you can succeed, whether you have a job or you don't. You make something out of yourself. Wonderful. So uh, let's fast forward to when you came to the United States. Well, I was still at the nuns uh, school because when I graduated, 
my mother had sent my brothers to, uh, to college. One of them was in the United States studying to be a doctor. The second one was in Egypt studying to be a, an architect. The third one was in uh, Iraq, Mosul, studying civil engineering. But at the time, I was the only girl. Later on, there was another one. And she didn't want to send me out of the country. So the nuns hired me at age 17 and a half to teach kindergarten. I didn't have a college degree, but I had a high school degree. And it was a London matriculation that I, I studied everything in English. That's because the nuns were mostly French, Maltese, Irish. So I had that advantage of being able to teach kindergarten English language. And then one day my parents said someone came and asked for my hand. I did not know him. He was in this country in the U.S. And in about three weeks I was married and... <laughs> a month later, I was. We had. He brought a visa from the American consulate, and brought me to Cliffside Park, New Jersey, where I still live in the same house that I came to in 1966 in July. Did you have any say in the matter, or was this strictly an arranged marriage, it, and you? you were required to go along? It, it was not arranged because he really wasn't even in the country. He had seen me walking in Ramallah with my mother, asked someone, who's this girl? They told him who I was. He was from the same town, and he asked uh, some of the men's there, the elders, to come and uh, ask for my hand. And I just said, yes, there was nothing else at the time that you could do. Hmm. So I came to the United States, and then we'll proceed from there, how I got to where I am now. So uh, you, were, you were saying in, in our pre-talk that you had a store in West New York. Right. So let's, let's go back to that point. Well, as soon as we came here, I found out he was a traveling salesman. I didn't know anything about him other than his name and his family. And he wanted to open a business so that maybe he would stop traveling and we would work in the store together. So he rented about five months after I got to the U.S., he rented a big store, two floors, on 62nd Street in West New York and sent me to New York to start picking the merchandise. I was 18 and a half, and I had never been in New York, but he knew it very well, and he told me which bus, and I went to the Empire State Building where the manufacturers were. And for the first time in my life, I had met a Jewish person because I was in Ramallah, it was all Christians, Muslims, Arabs, I had never seen one. So I came back and I said to him, oh my God, I actually met a Jewish person and they're just like us. They're <laughs> not any different. That man's name was Max and he helped me not only, I didn't know anything about the merchandise I was buying. It was men's, ladies, children clothing, and the bottom floor was uh, towels and linens and uh, comforters and anything you need for your house. So Max taught us how to price so that you don't put something for dollars, you put it three ninety nine. And up till now, all my children know that I met Max, who was Jewish, and he taught me how <laughs> to do the pricing. Now, the area was all Spanish, and I spoke at the time Arabic, English, and French because the nuns taught us French for eight years. But here, if you didn't speak Spanish, you could not sell anything because that whole area was Cubans and Puerto Ricans. 
So I hired a young girl from the high school to come every day, to, not to help me in the store, but to teach me Spanish. And so up till now, without taking it in school, I am fluent in Spanish, probably as good as English, if not better. Because Amazing. I spent seven years in that store. What happened, though, it was a successful business. It did help us. We didn't have a car. We bought a car. We were renting a small apartment, a one-bedroom in Cliffside Park, in the same house that I now own, and I live in the whole house. We were able, in a couple of years, to buy the house. It wasn't the prices that you see today. But all that was from our hard work in the store. We opened nine to nine, six days a week. At the time, we still closed on Sundays. Nowadays, they even open Sundays. Meanwhile, I was having one kid after the other because uh, my husband wanted a boy. So by the seventh year in the store, I was pregnant with my fourth who's Maysoon. And at that time, the malls started opening in Paramus, big stores that small uh, stores like us couldn't compete with. So now I had pregnant with my fourth and the business was going down. So we decided to sell the business and he returned to his uh, traveling salesman job and I was taking care of the kids. I did that. Now, that was 1974 already because the store was from 67 until 74. So we sold the store. Maysoon was born. She had cerebral palsy, which without being in the healthcare, I had noticed that something is different the minute they brought her. She, her arm, the left arm, was twitching. And I called the nurse and said, something is wrong with this baby. She is twitching. So they called in a consult uh, on a neurologist. And we, with all the testing they did, they uh, diagnosed her with cerebral palsy that happened during the delivery because I was about 16 hours uh, in labor, and uh, by the time they decided to do a C-section, she had lost like four minutes of uh, oxygen. Oh, my. So once she was born, uh, maybe this wouldn't be for people to hear, but my husband kept saying, if there is no boy, he was going to get married. So I said, well, I am going back to school. And I went to Bergen Community, and they said, you have to take the SATs. Now, I had been out of high school for seven years. So I was already way past the SATs, but I took that. And they, I put myself as a foreigner. And when the results came out, they called me. They said, you're not a foreigner. You scored higher than the kids who just finished high school. So you could choose whatever you want to study. And I started my first uh, three credits were in biology. <laughs> Nothing easy. So at the end of that semester, I got an A. Meanwhile, I was taking care of the four kids. I was cooking and cleaning, and we were washing in the laundromat on Anderson Avenue. We didn't even have a washer and dryer. So I decided, well, I'm not going to be in a community college if I could get an A. This means it's an easy one. So I transferred to a four-year school, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So at first, I said, maybe I'll go in nursing. I wanted something in healthcare because my brother is a surgeon. His wife was an internist. I figured maybe I'll work with them. Even though they were in Tennessee, I don't know how I thought I was going to work with them. 
But when I went to see the nursing profession and observe them, I said, I'm not going to be able to do that. I need something to work with scientific testing. So I asked around and they said medical technology would be the good field for you. So I went into medical technology and I got a Bachelor of Science in that. And I interned at Barnard Hospital, which for a Palestinian like me turned out to be a very strict Jewish hospital. Because you apply for your internship and I was accepted in maybe three hospitals, Hackensack, St. Joseph's in Patterson and Barnard. But for me, Barnard was a straight shot on Route 4. I didn't have to go left or right or find it. Uh So I went to the one that I wouldn't get lost going there. So the first day, they were doing orientation. And they said, you cannot bring anything that's not kosher into this hospital. So I had a banana in my pocketbook, and I couldn't wait to get out of the hospital and eat it because I didn't know whether it was kosher or not. <laughs> was it? <laughs> I ate it in the parking lot. Is there such a thing as kosher bananas? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I, don't. I don't think so, but I mean, I, that day I didn't know what they... I knew that kosher meant something that I had to take by from the hospital. Because then, now I know what kosher is. But back then, I didn't know anything. So So, for our audience who doesn't know what a medical technologist does, please walk us through what that entails. Well, you learn all about medical technology, not really in college. Because in college, they only give you an overview, two credits of what medical technology is. But you have to take math, chemistry, biology, organic chemistry, because you're going to deal with testing of the human body. But when we do the internship, that's when they teach you what a medical technology does. And you have several fields that constitute the laboratory. So there is first the blood bank. The blood bank is where we have blood units that we bring from a blood center that draws donors. And we have to match that blood to the person's blood that needs it and make sure that that blood is going to be good for that person. Match them completely. Then there is hematology. Hematology, where you would count the number of red cells in your body, the number of white cells, how much hemoglobin you have. And we can look at your cells under the microscope and see if you have anemia or if you have leukemia or you, if you have any of the diseases that come from the blood. All types of leukemias or anemias can actually be diagnosed by looking at a drop of blood that's been stained so that the human eye can recognize the different kinds of cells and whether they are normal or abnormal. Then there is the chemistry area. So the medical laboratory is many sections, not one. In chemistry, we can practically measure up to 75 to 80 chemicals that are in the body. And each chemical would tell you which organ has an issue. It could be cardiac enzymes. It could be potassium that is important in your whole body functions. It could be uh, tests for the liver function, tests for kidney function. So in the chemistry, each set of chemistry tests tells you which area of the body has an issue. Then there is microbiology. In microbiology, we can test whether it be stool, whether it be saliva, whether it be anything coming out of the lungs or the throat, and tell the physician whether this is an organism that requires antibiotics or whether nothing grew so the person who has for example a respiratory illness may be just a viral 
that needs rest and fluids and should not have any antibiotics. So each section is specific, specific for a certain disease entity. Then we learned all about histology. Histology is the area where when you are operated on, they take some tissues, whether it be from the stomach, the intestines, the liver. We make slides, we stain them, and then a pathologist would look at those and diagnose whether the person has colon cancer or whether the person has any type of illness from the tissues that were taken out. So we learned all that during the internship. And at first, when we graduate and you go to, into the field, you try to take a generalist position because a generalist means they can rotate you from the blood bank to hematology to chemistry to micro to coagulation. So you are not stuck in one area and then losing all that knowledge that you had learned for a full year. The internship was 12 months. So how long did you do that? And, and well, I, when I graduated, I, the internship was 12. We finished in August. And really up till today, anything in healthcare, you will not have any problem finding a job. It, and I say it now to my grandchildren. It doesn't just have to be medical technology. You could go into physical therapy. You could become a pharmacist. You could become a nurse. You could become a doctor, a PA, a nursing practitioner. You will never have to look for a job. So so for those of us that uh, look at the medical field as potentially somewhat depressing, yeah because of what you're dealing with, people's right. illnesses. Right. How do you, as a professional in that field, not be affected by that? And is it the fascination with the science? Is it being the satisfaction of improving people's lives? What is it about the field that keeps it interesting? I assume it is interesting. It is. And you like to be involved in, and that's mm -hmm. fulfilling. What? Well, First of all, you know, when you do go in healthcare, you are dealing with people's lives. And I taught this field later on in my career. I was a teacher at UMDNJ, University of Medicine and Dentistry, and I used to always tell them that tube of blood that comes has a person behind it. It could be your mother or your father and treat it as such because they depend on you doing your best, giving an accurate diagnosis. A false result can affect a patient's treatment. Not just today, but I am talking even about 1980. They would depend on those tests to treat the patient. So for us, it was more about making sure that we are giving the most accurate, precise result that we can. I can give you an example how important it would be for us. When I was working in Hackensack Medical Center, a labor and delivery patient would come in, and once in a while, that patient may be bleeding we drop everything and we concentrate on getting the blood, getting the plasmas, getting the platelets. At one point, I had given up to 40 units of blood and plasma and platelets to one patient. And she survived. Obviously, she had a big problem. We would call it DIC. That's why she required all this. And the next day, her husband came down to thank the blood bank for saving his wife. Now, this is almost for me 25 years later, but I still remember that incident and how the world could have come down, but we would still have been concentrating on saving this woman's life. This is our role in the laboratory, even though we're not on the units, on the nursing units. The nurses have more one-to-one -one with the patient. 
But they have to wait for us to prepare that blood. They have to wait for us to find out if your glucose is 500 and they need to give you the insulin or it's so low that they have to give you an orange juice. And after all these years, I see that the testing has increased because now we even do genetic testing on to find out whether the treatment we're giving a, an HIV person is going to work against that virus or not. So the field advances and there is still need for more research in that field. When we first started the field, in order to count your red cells and white cells, we had to use a small pipette and dilute the blood and put it in a device that allows us to count and calculate. And now we advance so much that you mix that tube load it into a cassette and an instrument will count every red cell, every platelet, every white cell and brings it out in the computer. And if you want it printed, it's fine. And if you don't want it, it will go up to the floor or to the iPhone of the physician. And I've gone through all those steps because even though I changed uh, jobs, because I wanted to see all aspects that I can do with my degree. I did uh, not mention that after five years of doing this, I went and earned a master's degree while working full-time, so the hospital would help pay for it, and taking care of the four daughters. And that allowed me to move up you were a uh, very my... busy woman, I'm sure. Oh, I am. <laughs> I was very busy. I wasn't washing in the laundromat anymore. <laughs> we had a washer and dryer then, but, <laughs> but we still... So to not to divert too much from medical technology, but to show you there are other aspects that, or other areas that you can work in with your degree in medical technology. Because at one point, I went and worked for Fisher Diagnostics, which is a company that manufactures the re chemicals that we use in the laboratory. And my job was to be a technical specialist, sitting in an office, helping the laboratories in hospitals or private laboratories troubleshoot their equipment. Because you know, you know the theory, you know the steps that you have to tell them to do. And so they would call you and say, the control isn't working. What should I do? So at first you tell them, change the reagent. Make sure the diluent is clean. Put some bleach in the instrument to clean it from anything that's in it. Now try it while I'm still with you on the phone. If everything else fails, then you tell them, okay, an engineer, you need to bring an engineer to fix it further. But meanwhile, I'm going to send you another kit that has all the reagents to see if something happened during shipping of that reagent. And that's why you're getting the, into trouble. In that field, I was not working with any of the blood or patients, but I was helping the hospitals deliver those results as quickly as possible. Because if the machine is broken, nothing is going to be out. And also, while I was in that field, I was able to help marketing in how to explain the test. We were selling a, an instrument that we brought from Italy. It was a coagulation instrument. And it's an instrument that lets you know how long would the blood clot if the person is going to be injured. So if you're going to surgery, they want to make sure that you're going to stop bleeding once they finish. So we were helping marketing who are people who have maybe MBAs or have business degrees they have no clue about hematology or coagulation. So in that position, which is for the same company, I was often traveling with them 
and helping them present the instruments and the reagents. So I went from being in a hospital to being in a commercial place that manufactured. After that, I also went into UMDNJ to teach the new generation of medtechs. And I did the courses in hematology, in blood banking, coagulation. And I would all, always give them the idea to stay in the healthcare field, even if you don't like medical technology. If you want to be employed, choose something else in the field, as we said, physical therapy or pharmacy or nursing, or, and you will always find a job. And that still holds true in today. Something that I've encountered is that there's always or that there has been a lack of women in the field of science. But we're talking about your career that, you know, started with medical technology. And the last position you held was chief of The lab? pathology section. Yeah. Uh-huh. And right now I'm a consultant for the same hospital where I was for 13 years. And be, the reason that you are st- I'm still in that field is because if you're good at what you do, upper administration recognizes that. And how do they do that? Not only that the doctors are happy with what's coming out of your laboratory, that they can trust your results, but also we are inspected by Joint Commission by College of American Pathologists, by the Department of Health. Nowadays, there is another organization called DNV, and you have to be in top shape. All your policies, all your procedures, all your quality control is under inspection. If you make a mistake, for example, and it's in blood bank, it must be reported to the Department of Health. They can descend on you that same week and stay there until they find out how did you make that mistake. It's a very, very controlled area. And, you know, you have to be the best you can to be able to function in that field. But nowadays, I see a lot more women like personally, I like science, and I'm always happy when there is one of my daughters who became a PharmD, and now she got registered as an oncology pharmacist, because at least she went in the field that I'm very passionate about. And it's a field to help people stay healthy and help them recover if they are sick. And intellectually fascinating. Yes, and in many ways, it's like being a detective mm-hmm. when you're trying to figure out what's going on. Absolutely. Not just whether the person is sick or not. Sometimes uh, we, there was an issue, for example, that I came across where uh, one woman had a baby and the baby came positive for a drug. But the woman was negative. So we had to find out how did that happen? Because it came as an issue. Every hospital now has to have what we call a safety huddle. All the directors, all the administration will meet every morning and discuss anything that happened. Someone fell, a patient fell from a stretcher, or a patient was given a food that they are allergic to, or they were given a medication that may not have been the correct dose. So not only do we have to bring it into the safety huddle, but we have to come the next day and explain how did that happen? And what did you do about it? And how can you prevent this from ever happening? Most of us thought that computers and automation is going to replace human beings. We have more technologists in the lab than before the computers and the automation because the machine can do the test, but you still have to have a person who's going to look at it, make sure it's the right 
result, make sure that it's crossing into the computer correctly. You have to have a person to bring that blood and you have to have a person to feed the instrument, the reagents. So at the point when we were all afraid of automation in the 90s, it turned out to be mute because they still need us and need more of us. But to talk about that issue with the baby, they brought it and said, what did the lab do? Now, at this point, I be, I'm the consultant for the laboratory, and I'm the one who's going to look at all their quality assurance. I'm going to troubleshoot any issue that comes up that affected a patient's safety. So I said, well, there's no way. How could the baby be positive if the mother is negative? Now, we investigated what happened. Their mother was given a medication prior to anesthesia. But we have no knowledge of that. But when you said as a detective, yes, you have to go back to the doctor, to the nurses, to the anesthesia, find out is there anything that could have given us that result. It's not false positive. There is a false positive that once in a blue moon would happen or a false negative. But this one we repeated two, three times because how could the newborn be positive and the mother is negative? Until we found out that the mother was given that medication and it passed to the baby. So in the span of your career, what are some struggles or obstacles that you've had to overcome? I think uh, the, the struggles that I had was to be able to take care of all my duties as a mother and always be there and also do the full shift that I'm in without ever leaving it. Uh, at one point when my uh, children became older and they were in college, I worked in two different hospitals. I would do one shift in Hackensack and I would do part-time Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays doubles in Valley Hospital in Ridgewood. The struggle was to keep everything straight. Is this the same instrument? Is this the same technique? Because not every hospital uses the same equipment. So I often had to look at my calendar and see where is it that I'm going. At one point, I changed jobs because in Englewood Hospital, we were using a tube technique for blood bank. And in another hospital, we were using a different gel. And that area is so important that I just didn't want to get mixed up when I'm doing the same test, but in two totally different techniques, I said, I'm going to go to another hospital that has the same for blood bank so that I would make sure I won't make a mistake. I kept doing this two hospitals until all my children finished college. And then I went and took a manager's job in Palisades General. I lasted there until I cleaned up the lab, made it get 100% from the Joint Commission for Accreditation of Hospitals. And then I said to them, now I'm done, I'm bored, I have to go somewhere else. And I went to Valley Hospital. Valley Hospital is a very well-known, respected hospital. I stayed one year and they subcontracted me to another hospital that they took over the contract as a director for Bergen Regional Medical Center in Paramus, which was a 1,000-bed hospital, but mostly for long-term care, psych, psychiatric area, and a little acute care. And the reason they chose me is nobody else would go there because they said, we're not leaving the club. Country club is what we called Valley, has the money, has the equipment, and go to... Bergen Regional, which was a lot poorer hospital. Were there any battles with management to get equipment or upgrade equipment that you felt was not up to the task uh, or that could be done 
the test could be done better if you had better equipment? Well, you know, management would uh, not want to spend the money until you tell them when the inspection comes, we're going to be cited. That made them give you whatever you wanted. And it is true, if the inspectors come and find that your machine is uh, falling apart and your quality control is being repeated 10 times before you get a result, they are going to cite you. And who listens to the citation? The CEO and the VPs and the patient safety vice president. They don't want me sitting there and saying that... For a year, I have been asking them to get me this instrument or get us this new refrigerator for the blood bank. When it came to hospitals especially, you got what you wanted there because you were inspected by everybody. Uh, For example, in a trauma center, you also get uh, inspected by the trauma. And it's not just for the room where they bring the trauma, it's for the blood bank. How quickly can the blood bank supply the blood? Because when it's a trauma, we're not going to be sitting and cross-matching and making sure that this blood matches the trauma. We are going to release the universal donor, which is O negative for women of childbearing age, O positive if it's a male, O negative if we don't know what the trauma is, because mostly we're going to get a number. We're not going to get a name. So in that case, like you go to administration and tell them trauma is coming and to inspect the organization that gives you the level. Level one trauma is those that you have patients coming by helicopter. Level two, you don't have a helicopter pad, but you are a trauma center. They, you tell them the refrigerator is not enough for me to have 100 units here because a trauma can take up to 30, 40 units before you stabilize them. Because that blood is just going out until they <laughs> fix the patient. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they would give you... I never had a struggle, in, at least in my career, and I was in most of the major hospitals here. And people told me, you're never going to get a pension. You keep moving. I said, yeah, but I'll learn new equipment, new policies, new procedures. You're not doing the same thing every year, every day. The minute I find myself parking in the same spot, buying the same cup of tea, I know it's time to go. But this last job, I lasted 13 years And then they outsourced the lab, and I was not going to stay. I said to them, I'm leaving. And I did leave. I stayed a year really mostly researching, and I wrote a lot of uh, articles in my computer about the blood banking, about testing, about to keep myself current. Mm -hmm. And then they called me back, and they said, choose your days. Come for as long as you can. We need your help. So I went back now for two years and four months. And I'm looking not just at uh, the laboratory, but at clinics that that we own, surgery centers. We have an emergency department in Bayonne. I go all over, make sure that everything follows all the regulations, all the standards, all the policies that should be followed. So you can tell your audience that if you studied medical technology, for example, you're not going to get stuck in a lab all your life. You can go into the pharmaceutical industry and do research. You can go into the manufacturing and not just become a technical specialist, but actually manufacture the equipment or the chemicals and reagents that we use. You can go into a blood center and be the one who prepares those units that the blood banks buy. You can go into teaching the subject. So there are many areas that you can excel in with a degree in medical technology. So is there any area that you, in hindsight, would have gone into if you had to do it differently? 
Well, at one point, I had taken molecular neurobiology during my uh, master's, and the professor had offered me to do a PhD in that field. And molecular neurobiology was still, at the time, in the 80s, mid-80s is when I got my master's, was still a young and very exciting field. But unfortunately, with the four kids and the finances then, I, for a PhD, you had to concentrate all your efforts there, and I would have liked to do that. But I did enough in my uh, career that I really don't regret it. Up till today, there isn't a day that I don't read something new about any area of healthcare. Because you cannot stop learning. When Once you say, oh, I know it all, you're done. None of us can know it all. You have to keep yourself interested in the field. You have to keep yourself knowledgeable. Because what I learned in 1980, the theory may be relevant, but everything has changed. So you have to keep up with the advances in the field. And that keeps you on your toes and keeps you interested. It sounds like you've had a very fulfilling career. You went into the different areas that you wanted to go into out of interest. It's still interesting for you. It's still a new frontier. Yes. Yeah. So next steps for you? Next steps is I'm trying to get out of the consulting, but they just asked me to put in extra day a week at least. But I think I'd like to teach again because then I can teach the new generation and share the experience that I had and share all that theories that I have in my computer. And uh, I started with my uh, grandchildren. As much as I can, I'm pushing them towards healthcare. So the one who graduated this June is going in to be a physician assistant. And uh, I explained to him the role of a physician assistant and how they can work in clinics, they can work in hospitals, they can work in surgery centers, they can change their not their career, but their concentration. You could do one year of orthopedics and then move to OBGYN, move to dermatology. You learn on the job because you already have the theory. You've already done, it's a six-year program. So anybody that speaks to me and asks my opinion, that's where I'm sending them. As if you like art, do something in art, but that's not going to feed you. If you like to, um, Maysoon went into comedy. She's uh, successful. But not everybody is going to be able to be successful in that field. So you need something else to fall back on. I did the store for seven years. When I was negotiating contracts in the hospitals, I told them, oh, I ran a store uh, for seven years. I was 18 years when I started. I know all about negotiations and writing uh, contracts and getting them to lower the prices. So, you know, every experience you have will help you in the next field that you go in. So the experience of a store in West New York, I brought it in many times. I put on my resume that ran a business for seven years, took care of the budget. It may not be the budget of a laboratory, which is in millions, but that makes them look at your resume again. So every experience is good for you. You're just drawing on all of it. Absolutely. I translate Mm -hmm. to patients. uh, When the doctor calls me, um, my name is on the list of uh, people who can translate Arabic to English or Spanish to English, English to Spanish. And nowadays, by law, you cannot treat the patient if they don't understand what you're saying. So even the knowledge of languages gave me one, and I always put it on my resume, languages spoken, especially in hospitals. 
I'm often called to the emergency department. For example, in Jersey City Medical Center, there are a lot of uh, people from Egypt, and they would have probably just come. They don't know any English. And so they would tell me, explain to them what, is, what the treatment is going to be, explain to them what, how they're going to take this medication. And how thankful they must feel to have someone who can speak with them oh, fluently. Absolutely. And I had to take a course for that, although it was offered by the hospital, because when you are in a hospital setting, uh, you have to take a course which is called interpretation because you actually have to interpret exactly like the patient is saying it. You can't just say, Lourdes says this. You're actually talking in her voice. So, and you're also talking to the patient in the doctor. So you're actually interpreting, not just uh, translating from Arabic to English. To those of us not in the medical field, there's, there's much more to it than we would have imagined. And, uh, you know, I always tell my daughters all the things that I never mention any patients, but I always talk about what we came across today. Or, oh, my God, someone lied down when I was in Englewood on the race track, on the train tracks. And the train, obviously, he was not there. And the train took his legs. And I spent hours in the blood bank switched his blood type after talking to the doctor, again gave that patient no less than 35 units of blood. And he made it. But he didn't have his legs. So I would, you know, our field is a very interesting, but it's also helping people. And people just think it's a lab test. There is a lot that goes into that. Uh, this is off probably, but uh, my own cousin was uh, 39 years old and lived in North Bergen. Now, that was my first job in the laboratory, but I only lasted one year as a tech, and then they made me supervisor of hematology. Just one year. I mean, I, I was very thorough in everything that I did. You must have been very good at your job. Plus, you know, by then I had four kids, so I, I was a little bit more mature than the ones who are just getting out of They school. toughened you up. It toughens you up, <laughs> four of them. <laughs> if you had to choose a completely different field, what would that have been? Not in the medical field. Probably a researcher in science, <laughs> in chemistry, in Maybe for CDC, they're all about all these new diseases that are coming out, which are not very easy to treat, like Ebola and all this uh, Zaki virus. And all. But research would have been my field. But to be a researcher, I would have to go where the research is done, like the NIH the CDC and going to college when you have four kids and a husband and a house, you don't have that luxury. So, but I did very well, good with whatever I had. You did amazingly. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining oh, us. Yes, Anytime. Appreciate it. it. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.